I am here with Carl Hennigan, who's Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, and John Broderson, who's Associate Professor at the Research Unit and Section for General Practice at the University of Copenhagen. Um, now guys, you've both just uh, chaired sessions at the Overdiagnosis Conference talking about screening. Um, and we've covered everything from breast cancer through cervical cancer, osteoporosis, infant heel prick tests. Um, are there any themes, any, any similarities between these different screening modalities and, and overdiagnosis? Yeah, I think, I think it's been an exceptionally interesting session and actually we had to stop people because they were carrying on and wanted to discuss. But I think, for me, there were three main issues, I think, and maybe John. The first was this idea that there's increasing incidence with no benefit in terms of hard outcomes, and particularly death, and it was a good example there in thyroid cancer. There was a second issue then about often you get repeat interval testing occurs, and it's often too soon. There are large gaps between optimal care, and it seems like nobody's got a clear understanding. You do a test like PSA, when should you do it again? And you end up doing it too soon. And then the third was there are major problems with the evidence base. In particular, the trials are too short and they're often based on surrogate outcomes. And in many areas like prostate cancer, we feel like we're no further ahead 10 years down the stream in terms of clinical practice. I want to add two things. One is that screening raises a dilemma. Uh, some screening programs have benefits. Some screening programs have harms. And it's not easy to measure the balance between benefits and harms. And as Carl is saying, the evidence is not always there. That's one thing mm. that this is why it's so interesting. The other thing is that in uh, cervical cancer, we actually have the setting now where primary prevention is meeting secondary prevention. So we will see a drop in the incidence of a disease. But what, how will that affect the outcome of screening? And we actually do not know. So. There's a lot to discuss and we, we really need knowledge. Yeah, and I think that's interesting. There was a, a session there just about cervical cancer, which, you know, this issue that pathological abnormalities don't necessarily correlate with disease conditions, do they? And that's a problem for HPV and cervical cancer. Yeah. And that was an interesting example is to say you could end up given a vaccine, you change what the pathological abnormalities look like, but we still might not know what the impact is on the disease of interest. And the pathological conditions that we are finding when we screen are not all of them giving, uh, resulting in final cancer. And, there's, and when we start vaccinating, we're only vaccinating against those that develop into cancer. So there's still a lot of abnormalities in the population, although they're screened yeah. and vaccinated. So, yeah. And one of the interesting issues that we discussed was this, was this idea, if you're going to vaccinate, what are you going to do with the screening program? Yes. Are we going to start later? Are we going to extend the intervals? Are we going to stop it? What are we going to do? But we're going to have to do something because they're not compatible to carry on with the way we're doing. No, the benefit-harm ratio will change. The benefits will, of course, decrease. The harms will relatively increase when the incidence of a disease drops. So sooner or later, we have to stop it. And evidence is indicating that in 40 or 50 years, the herd immunity will, will do that we will not have any cervical cancers left. So in the next 40 or 50 years, we have to consider what to do with this screening program. And, and there was one interesting thing that, that I learned, and it was about this. We looked at borderline ovarian tumors, and I think this is interesting, is that early borderline tumors 
are distinct from primary invasive tumours. Mm -hmm. So that the ones that you're picking up early were already borderline tumours and may not be the ones that actually you see late and cause more disease. And as a consequence also, if you align that up, is that many people are not aware that many cancers may not progress to invasive cancer. And actually they're slow, and that in many areas like prostate cancer, you actually may die of something else in the meantime. And it's very, very uh, important what you're emphasizing here, that in ovarian cancer screening, where you find borderline tumors, that you do not know if they progress to invasive cancer and disease, then you will find something and you have to treat it. And we, if we look on previous evidence, it's very harmful. We mm. had, in Denmark, we had a randomized control trial where actually two women with these conditions died from the intervention. And the American study shows no benefits, only harm. Yeah, and so, and one thing that is interesting, and we had a very long discussion about this, was that in many of these areas, there's considerable uncertainty. And then the burden of the decision is to be placed on the patient. Yet often the evidence is uncertain or unknown or not available or not sufficient to be able to inform a real debate. So it's actually, and we're both GPs, I just find it incredibly difficult for somebody to assume that in a 10-minute position, I'm going to be able to actually inform and allow somebody to make an informed decision. Some, some people just talked about the fact, well, maybe send the patient away and they come back, but actually that's a really interesting issue. We don't know what the impact of sending patients away, looking up knowledge, seeing if that improves their decision-making capacity. I, I went to another session, an Australian session, where they had asked the women if they were positive to screen mammography before they educated them, and 80% of the women were positive. So we are starting out with people coming into our consultations they're very positive to screening and then we have to start explaining to them that it can actually be harmful yeah. and and this and this is very often not informed yeah. consent this is actually yeah, sometimes yes. a waste of time yeah so as gps i mean you're both practicing how do you actually do that you know do you have any skills any anything that you can impart uh you know to to to, to get across some of those those thorny when, problems. When I teach evidence-based medicine at the University of Copenhagen, we can discuss it, we can talk about it, we can talk about the benefits, the harms, the certainty and the uncertainty in the results. When I'm sitting with the patient, uh, when they are invited by the government, they will have an inform, in, information leaflet. So I ask them, have you read the information leaflet? Is there anything you want to discuss? Do you have any questions? And there I feel that the information, the responsibility for the information is at the government's table. It's another case when the man comes in and he is asking for PSA screening because here we don't have organized screening programs and here I have to provide him with the benefits and harms. Yeah, and there are many reasons why people may come in. They, they may have a family or a friend who's had a PSA test and got a positive diagnosis. That leads to more. There may be there's something read in the media. I think the first is what John's right. The first is you've got to know your evidence on the treatment effects. You've got to know where we're going in the downstream. So the systematic review evidence is really helpful. B, then, the second issue is I do think you need some resource or some aids where I sometimes will send on the internet and say, look, go and look at this, go away. But, you know, is that perfect? Do I know whether that's going to work or help the system? Because 
remember, when we think about it, most people are coming in because they want something. So we're already in or a position. Or they're worried. Or they're worried. And their expectation is that we can give them a preventive procedure that is changing their prognosis. Yes, and, and that is very difficult to do. And I think the, the discussion was a bit, well, should the government or should it be somebody's to inform people so they start to understand this in a much wider perspective so when you do get these influences, you already contextually know about that. The problem with that is the amount of commercial influences, the conflicts that then will distort the message. And we know that happens, and we had a lot of discussions. Quite a few people put up about what we now call commercial screening. Is there are businesses out there who think there are opportunities here to bring in tests around the side. That in some situations, we saw an example this morning, was a battery of screening tests that can be done in a place in London, and it's three and a half thousand pounds. And I was astounded that somebody would go through and pay that much money. But if you're anxious, you can see why. And that's the problem. People generally are becoming more anxious about their health. And in Denmark, we see, although we have a public-run uh, uh, healthcare system, we see more and more people get a private insurance, and, and these insurance, insurance companies are offering people annual health checks, including all these tests. So there's a, another system, there's a parallel system offering people all these kinds of tests. And of course, they go to their GP and ask for that as well. Yes, and I suppose what's happening here, and there was an example, it was about neuroradiology. And what we're seeing is a technology-led healthcare system. The technology is going ahead, and the evidence base is having to catch up. But in between there, we've got this phenomenon of what they call incidentalomas, of all these findings that nobody clearly understands what to do with. And that's going to present in us with all sorts of problems. We also have from David Haslam, who seemed to imply that NICE's role in this is you know, cost-effectiveness analysis, and actually the, the over-treatment side of it, the over-diagnosis side of it, maybe that's someone else's to explain. Uh, you said, you know, when it comes from a national screening program, John, that, that maybe it's the government's role to provide that information. I mean, it gets really messy, and, and you do wonder where patients are actually going to to find out and get good quality uh, data about, about treatments that really matter to them. The problem here is that it's a really, really difficult information. It's so complex. Preventive, in, uh, preventive procedures are not only beneficial, they are also harmful. And if we look at the NICE guidelines, and if you say that the GPs should be the one you discuss this with and have informed consent, then my waiting room would be full of healthy, worried people. Uh, the, uh, the, the demographics in the society is that we are getting more and more old people. We can see thresholds are being lowered. And in my country, we can also see that the government now use the guideline as an indicator of good quality. But when Carl and I are teaching evidence-based medicine, we say you cannot use external evidence as the truth of what you should do. You have to consider patients' values and preferences. And if the patient is provided with the benefits and the harms and choose not to have a treatment, choose not to have a test, then that is also good quality. But in a quality indicator, that will be bad quality and it will not follow the guidelines. 
I think it's interesting. I can go back. I remember David Saki was the first director of the centre. Did a trial in the 1970s where they went into the workplace and screened people for hypertension. And they picked up many people with hypertension. But what they did do is also found they increased the rates of anxiety and depression, increased the rates of time off work, and all these in, in, consequences that they didn't expect occurred as the consequences are going in. Now, what we know is that the lower your risk, the more likely these harmful consequences are, more, are going to outweigh any benefit. And at the moment, we're trying to seek out people at very low risk of disease, and that's going to present us all sorts of problems and also is completely unaffordable. There is not enough money going to go round to then have save up for when we need people with the high risk who are at disease and we're not maximising our opportunities with that group of patients because that's where most of the benefit is. The flip side to that is certainly we want to, if you have it or I or anybody has a cancer diagnosis, we want to pick that up early. And picking it up early in any cancer improves your survival. However, what it doesn't always do is improve your mortality. And that's key. And there's a complete bias that if you pick it up early, you will survive longer. But you're not necessarily live any longer. If you can get that one message in your mind, that's really interesting. So most of PSA, if you screen for PSA, you'll pick it up early. You'll survive longer from the time of your diagnosis, but you might not necessarily live any longer. And if you can get that in, you can then understand the whole idea of what overdiagnosis is really about. I would, I would phrase it in another okay, way. That's... Maybe it doesn't work in English, <laughs> but being diagnosed earlier, then you have more years as a patient. Yeah. But you will not necessarily live longer. Although the opportunities to make money commercially are greater, to interfere, to do more, keep doing more, repeat tests and find something are so great that actually we will increase our anxiety and burden unless we really grasp this and do something differently. But the, the study about hypertension, mm. I've done the same in breast cancer, mm -hmm. lung cancer, yeah, yeah. cervical cancer, and abdominal autoaneurysm screening, and seen the same. It is disturbing people, people are getting yeah. worried, people are using the healthcare system more. So we are actually, yeah, we are yeah. turning healthy people into patients. Carl Hannigan and John Brotherson, thank you very much.